and welcome to AJC's Passport, a weekly podcast where we examine political events, the people driving them, and what it all means for the Jewish community. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Peace through dialogue is the slogan of the Munich Security Conference, which has drawn world leaders to Germany each February since 1963. The conference is one of just a handful of events that brings together so many senior figures on the global stage. This kind of convening offers unique opportunities for diplomacy. In 2015, Secretary of State John Kerry met with Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif twice over the course of the three-day conference. These sit-downs paved the way for the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran Deal. Among the major topics addressed this year, were the future of that deal, ongoing nuclear aggression from North Korea, and the role of the United States in global affairs. Additionally, in his speech, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu laid out Israel's red lines against Iranian aggression and reiterated Israel's commitment to enforcing those limits. Deidre Berger, director of AJC's Berlin Raymer Institute, was also in attendance at the Munich Security Conference. She joins us now to discuss the event. Deidre, thank you for joining us. Hi, nice to be with you. Deidre, you were there in Munich. Tell us, what was the tone of the hallway chatter? What were the uh, overarching conversations of the conference? Well, one of the main topics was that there was no overarching conversation. Unlike previous years, last year, for instance, the election of President Trump was the overarching topic. And in previous years, Syria, Ukraine, this year, there was no one topic. And there were a number of different topics. And I think it created the feeling for all of us that the world is on the brink of a lot of dangers that we perhaps haven't been cognizant enough of because we've been so preoccupied with single conflicts. There was a lot of discussion about the U.S. presence or lack thereof because this was not as high level of a delegation as we've had in previous years, and a possible pivot to Europe within the European Union away from the U.S. This was a, a very big topic of discussion in the halls, not, of course, necessarily on the podium this very self-confident appearances on large delegations from countries like Iran, from Russia, were certainly very much under discussion. There were even threats on the part of the Turkish delegation against a member of the German parliament, Cem Ozdemir, to the degree that German security gave him special protection within the hotel because he was called a terrorist by the Turkish delegation staying in the hotel. So there was a lot of tensions that were going on, of course, a lot of expectations and curiosity about Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was appearing there for the first time. And the other big topic that was invisible but very present in the halls was China. The rise of China, Chinese influence, the Chinese Silk Road project, what does this mean for Europe, what does it mean for the U.S.? Are we recognizing fully the threat emanating from China or not? North Korea, I mean, in general, Asia was very much under discussion. So as, as you hear, it was quite a variety of topics um, in terms of security, also European security, which is at the core of, of what's going on. But there was no one topic in general. And Brexit 
of course, also was mentioned. Um, Theresa May was there. There's all sorts of challenges facing the EU, facing transatlantic relations, facing the Mideast, and those were some of the major issues being addressed. You mentioned that Prime Minister Netanyahu was there for the first time. One thing that I've noticed watching his speeches through the years is that he seems to love using props when he speaks uh, at the UN and and elsewhere on the world stage. He illustrated a point during this speech in Munich by holding up a piece of shrapnel from the Iranian drone that Israel recently shot down inside uh, Israeli airspace. He offered what he called, quote, a message to the tyrants of Tehran saying, quote, do not test Israel's resolve. It was a theatrical moment, to be sure, but also a fairly blunt warning to the Islamic Republic, especially in Europe, where diplomatic niceties are observed pretty rigidly. Carl Bildt, the former Swedish prime minister who remains well-respected in foreign policy circles, tweeted during the speech, as expected, Netanyahu is on the warpath, compares Iran nuclear agreement with Munich 1938 does not seek peace. Does Netanyahu's theatricality get through to European policymakers, or do they disregard him, even write him off as a warmonger like Bilt did? (laughs) There are lots of different responses. First of all, Netanyahu received prolonged applause, one of the the longest (laughs) rounds of applause of anyone who spoke. He's a good orator. There's no doubt about it. And this was a more international audience. These weren't just Europeans. I think Karl Bildt simply heard what he wanted to hear. Netanyahu did not compare the nuclear agreement to Munich in the sense he said very specifically, we certainly cannot compare the Iranian regime to the Nazis. I mean, he he was careful to be more differentiated. But it's something that European policymakers don't like to hear because it, it contradicts their impression, their idea of Netanyahu. I think that the theatrics work for some. And he certainly wasn't the only one, by the way, to make bold statements. His were based on facts, unlike the Russian and Iranian foreign ministers who made wild assertions that I think you could have had a a fact check running next to them while they were speaking, (laughs) and it would have gone off every three seconds. So (laughs) while it was theatrical, what he was saying was certainly true. He used another prop, and this was very effective. He held up a map showing where Iran has now established itself in the Mideast, showing the crescent of influence that it's now created through to Lebanon and the, the closeness of this threat to Israel. And the camera zoomed in on it. And I think this was, in some ways, the even more effective prop, as as we say it, because there are many in that room, policymakers, who I think have completely underestimated the degree to which Iran has spread itself in the Mideast, its hegemonial interest in its regional influence in most of the Mideast at this point, and it's simply not well understood in Europe. And I think he certainly made the point. Did he win new friends? He's very controversial in Europe. It's difficult to say, but he was there with force. 
and we will see how things continue. I think there is a growing recognition among many European policymakers that Iran's meddling in the affairs of others is dangerous and poses a danger to others, whether there's consequences, whether they're ready to impose sanctions, independent of the JCPOA, which is the nuclear agreement of the six powers with Iran. We will have to wait and see. So Netanyahu delivered these warnings right as Iran is working to make its military presence in Syria permanent. It has also recently fallen into its old habits of menacing Jewish targets around the world, most notably recently in Germany. Have European leaders responded to the growing Iranian aggression or is Iran's charm campaign still uh, fully operational? Now, to our great disappointment, we at AJC, particularly AJC Berlin, because as you mentioned, this happened in Germany, the raids on numerous Iranian agents, um, there's been no response to speak of. And we think it's wrong. We think it's inappropriate. Yes, of course, this is now an open investigation. We can't condemn something that that has not yet been prosecuted. But alarm could be raised. And There was, unfortunately, silence, more or less, from the German government, from the European government, as a result of this extremely widespread espionage. I mean, the um, German law enforcement authorities raided 10 sites. That's, That's a lot of people who are working on espionage against targets. We don't know that, I mean, it was rumored that some of them were Jewish targets. There were, for sure, other targets intended as well. And this comes on the heels of a trial last year of an agent for Iran who was sentenced because he had spied against the head of the German-Israeli society. These aren't always Jewish targets, but Jewish-themed targets. There's much that Europe still doesn't seem to be waking up to. The charm offensive, as you said, was very clear at the Munich Security Conference with Foreign Minister Zarif, who is a very sophisticated, very charming person, and sounds very credible when he says, oh, we in Iran, we're fighting terrorism. And that's all we're doing is trying to bring peace to the region. And we certainly don't interfere. And he pretended as if Iran is not in Syria, except at the invitation of the Syrian government and only to aid them where they've asked for help. And I mean, there was no truth content really to what he was saying, but it sounded very convincing, especially to Europeans who are to their credit, very focused on peace politics. I mean, this is one of their lessons from World War II. But unfortunately, to a degree, that's meant that they've neglected security. And that was a big topic at the, um, at the Munich Security Conference. To what degree are countries ready to boost their defense spending to 2% of the budget, as President Trump and President Obama, by the way, um, have requested? Sadly, Germany is proving the most resistant, and they were quite clear that they were not making that level of commitment, although the next day we read reports that the German army is so under-equipped in some areas that they don't even have tents and protective vests to carry out necessary exercises. So it's clear that Germany in particular, we hope, will start changing its attitude about European security and its own contribution. 
Deidre, you mentioned a few minutes ago that the U.S. delegation was uh, less high level than it has been in previous years. In fact, the highest ranking U.S. official to speak at the Munich Security Conference was National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. And the speech that he delivered has been termed anodyne. One observer even suggested that Susan Rice, who held McMaster's role under President Obama, could have delivered nearly the same address. How far did the McMaster speech go toward assuaging the concerns of those assembled in Munich? Have they been mollified? Are they less worried now about an unpredictable America? It was certainly a good speech. It was a very helpful signal from the U.S. how much his speech was in accord with what President Trump is thinking No one knows. This is one of the issues that we have at the moment with our own government in terms of representation abroad. But it was a measured speech. It was a speech that made clear that the U.S. is not abandoning Europe. It's not abandoning its allies. It was very welcomed. But I think it was more of a a stopgap measure, also because although Jim Mantis was present at the conference, he did not speak. And There was no real high-level person speaking, which sent a signal that in some ways almost counteracted, I think, the speech from McMaster. Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman, whose parents both survived the Holocaust, confronted Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki over Poland's new law, which could criminalize certain statements about Polish complicity in the Holocaust. In his response to Bergman, Morawiecki bizarrely spoke of, quote, Jewish perpetrators. Why would the Polish prime minister say something like that? And can you imagine a political leader in Germany ever answering Bergman's question that way? This was one of the most dramatic moments of the Munich Security Conference this year. In fact, it probably was the most dramatic moment. Let's just imagine it. Ronan Bergman, a younger Israeli journalist, stands up, and after the prime minister of Poland has delivered a long and somewhat rambling speech defending policies of his government that are not easily explicable, I think, for people living outside of Poland. And he said, my mother was a survivor, and her family, unfortunately, was betrayed by Polish neighbors. Would I be prosecuted for saying this if I said the same thing in Poland? And there was a moment of silence, and everyone waited. What would the prime minister say to this very personal, emotional appeal to the Polish government about a new law that criminalizes those who accuse Poland of collaboration in the Nazi era? What did the prime minister do? First, he went on for several minutes talking about how much the Poles suffered during the war. And he went into great lengths to explain this. They did. This is, this is all a fact, a true fact, but this wasn't the question. And then he didn't respond in any way, in a personal way, to this very emotional appeal to, to a, a journalist who's almost in tears. And then he said, well, yes, there were some Polish perpetrators, but there were also Jewish and Ukrainian perpetrators who worked together with the Germans. 
And there was a stunned silence. And Ronan Bergman said the following day, um, I, I was able to speak with him, that what stunned him the most was that there was no real stir in the room. There was, there was no feeling that people were upset or shocked with the prime minister, except a small, smaller group of us. I think the prime minister is reflective of a direction that's being taken at the moment in Poland, which is to emphasize again and again the degree to which Poles suffered um, at the hands of the Nazis, which of course they did, but avoiding the issue of collaboration in, in some cases, and more than collaboration, really, of perpetrators in Poland who helped kill Jews. Of course, this wouldn't have happened without World War II and the fact that the Germans invaded Poland. But there's also issues of anti-Semitism, of Poles killing Jews before World War II. There were also examples after World War II. How could he say Jewish perpetrators? It's historical revisionism going on in Poland, and it's turning the victims into perpetrators. It was an appalling moment. And one can only hope that, that the Polish government recognizes the impact of what it's doing and starts dialogue so that we can make some progress on these issues. This push in Poland comes out of a newly emboldened far right in that country. And in Germany, where you live, for the first time in decades, a far right party, Alternative for Germany or AFD, has entered the Bundestag, Germany's parliament. If the governing coalition that Chancellor Angela Merkel has proposed is approved, AFD will lead the opposition. How significant is this? It's a tremendous concern at the moment in Germany with the Alternative for Germany, a party which is an ultra-conservative, nationalist, populist party, also because of the surging strength of such parties throughout Europe. No one thought a year ago that this would even be possible in Germany on a national basis, that a far-right party would become so popular. And it's become even more popular since it entered Parliament. And any hopes that they would demolish themselves, so to speak, have simply vanished because it's clear that they are filling a political vacuum that was there, namely one of self-assertion, of historical revisionism to rewrite history in a way that seems more appealing to them, appealing to national pride, an anti-Europe movement, an anti-Muslim movement. The Jewish community in Germany, as well as the community in Austria and France, incidentally, have held very strong on this and said they proclaim themselves as being against anti-Semitism. They are, tend to be very pro-Israel, but we're not fooled because the party, or, or these, all of the parties have in common a, a xenophobic tendencies and racist tendencies. And it's not possible that a political party that is against an entire people, anti-Muslim, will ensure Jewish security in the long term. Despite our distaste over AFD's potential newly significant role, Angela Merkel, who has long been a friend of Israel, a friend of the Jewish people, stands to retain the chancellorship. Will she be in a weakened 
position after these protracted coalition negotiations? Will that have a significant domestic impact in Germany, an impact on the world stage? Well, at the moment, it certainly has had an impact. And in fact, at the Munich Security Conference, one of the most noticeable um, aspects of it was that Germany was missing, although it was taking place right in Munich. Neither the chancellor came nor the president came, and the highest level German official to speak, um, well, the foreign minister <clears throat> spoke, but not at the opening, and the defense minister opened it. It didn't feel like Germany was really there in a strong way. It was a very cautious Germany. France was much more self-assertive with the prime minister and the, de- the defense minister talking about European security, about their contribution. I think at the moment, Chancellor Merkel is clearly weakened. Um, there's a huge debate within her own party whether she handled the negotiations as well as she could have, and also whether she's lining up the necessary younger leadership to keep the party strong, as she, it seems unlikely that she, even if she serves out this fourth term, that she would stay in office. The surge of the far-right party and also the left remains strong is certainly creating a smaller middle, and it makes it more difficult to create a coalition. I think the concern is, where is Germany on the world stage? Germany as the strongest economic power in Europe, and and not just the largest economy, but clearly the largest country in the the heart of Europe, the country that's the fulcrum for Eastern and Western Europe. We want a strong Germany, and a Germany that exerts leadership, and not just partnership. And at the moment, Germany's not there. The political situation has weakened all the parties. The rise in populism is certainly having an impact. And I think it will take some time for Germany to sort itself out and also to acknowledge its role and increase, for instance, its commitment to defense and security of Europe. Thank you, Deidre, so much for joining us. We hope to have you on again soon. Thank you. You can subscribe to AJC's Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. Send your comments and questions to passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC's Passport.